Welcome everyone to the Australian Bitcoin Podcast. I'm Justin, your host, and today I'm joined by Katan from ministryofnodes.com.au to discuss Bitcoin nodes. But before we start, a quick word from our sponsor. The Australian Bitcoin Podcast is brought to you by hardblock.com.au. Hardblock is Australia's oldest Bitcoin-only exchange. They have no added fees and are optimized for dollar cost averaging. Sign up to Hardblock today using the discount link in the description below to receive free auto-send batch Bitcoin withdrawals for six months. All right, Katan, how's it going? Mate, how are you? Yeah, yeah, can't complain. The world is, uh, yeah, seems to be a sort of a slightly easier place to live in compared to the last few months and few years. Uh, yes, it, it has opened up a little bit. Bitcoin price is, uh, is dumping, which is really good for stacking. Um, yes. Clearing out weak hands and over leveraged positions. So I don't know that maybe the world is healing a little bit at the moment. Yes, that may may well be the case. Um, but who knows what's around the corner? You've always got to be vigilant. Indeed, exactly right. And I, I mean, you've uh, maybe been doing a bit of healing as well. Seems like you went on a bit of a holiday and were even considering perhaps a career change as a seaplane pilot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, look, um, yeah, I did go on a holiday, just a two-week stint, uh, went to Sri Lanka and the Maldives. Um, and in the Maldives, there was uh, some some seaplanes uh, that I thought were absolutely fantastic. Uh, spoke to you know a couple of the pilots there, and yeah, no, it was a it was a nice time. So, yeah, it was good. Is that something like? Would you really consider doing that? Because that seems like a pretty cool thing. As a, I don't even know, man. As a transition to retirement, like the last ten to twenty years of your career, and then even do that a bit in retirement or something. Just being a seaplane pilot, that it seems like a cool lifestyle. I would like that. Yeah, no, it is. It is. Um, it is an interesting. Uh, job. But again, you've got to remember there are downsides to it. So whilst look, the, the views are spectacular, um, you, you know, you kind of do your own thing. Uh, you just have to take passengers from one place to another. The other thing that you do also have to consider is the downsides. It's like, well, these passengers are relying on you depending, you know, on, on um, weather situations that you may not be feel comfortable flying with, um, you know, fuel situations, all that sort of stuff. You still have to consider so it's not all you know um roses and rainbows so it's not but like a holiday. <laughs> no i i wouldn't call it a holiday. it's a tough job I, I reckon it's a tough demanding job um to but i do think that it's you know something that you can sort of when you're in the plane you're kind of left alone to your own devices and that's probably one of the best parts of it as well that's true yeah well look i i can't fly a plane but i can carry heavy things so i mean look if you ever need someone to uh to carry For luggage <laughs> yeah, exactly man <laughs> take me take me along with you i'll go <laughs> yeah no no worries i figure that's probably pretty good like an orange pilling scenario as well where you know they're trapped on a small uh room with you you're the authority so if you say like bitcoin's the thing probably no one's really going to be arguing against you that that bitcoin's the thing you know no i, I don't think they would be um, because they need me to to get home <laughs> exactly right well, look, we don't need to coerce people into Bitcoin. I think the fiat legacy system does a, a pretty good job. A very good job of that. Exactly. <laughs> Indeed. Well, look, we might as well uh, jump into the uh, the topic of today, which is around Bitcoin nodes. Anyone who is uh, unaware of who Katan is uh, might as well look at one of the previous podcasts that we did where you gave a bit of a, a brief background in terms of how you got into Bitcoin. Um, and in that podcast, we talked about best practices for on-chain privacy, um, as well as a little bit about Lightning um, but more so just on-chain privacy. So I'll link that in the show notes in case anyone is keen. Um, so we don't need to do too much about introductions. We might as well just jump straight into maybe some basics about what a node is. So do you, like over the course of time, because this can go from anywhere from a very advanced explanation to relatively basic, if you were trying to explain to a normie or a new coiner, like what a node is, what, yeah, how would you, how would you approach that? Yeah, so the way that I would explain it is your your node, think of it like a, I guess, a fake Bitcoin detector. It allows you to independently verify that you actually have Bitcoin and not some other digital product or good. Um, and it's your gateway. Uh, it's your personal gateway into the Bitcoin network so you can broadcast transactions without anyone you know, uh, hindering that process. So that's kind of what the two main functions of a Bitcoin node are and kind of what it is. It, it Basically, it's just software that you run on your computer. That's, you know, at the crux of it, that's what it is. That makes sense. Yeah, I, the way I sometimes approach it is people have heard Bitcoin being a peer-to-peer -peer network. 
And sometimes they think that means person to person, which I guess that's true. Like if we're all Bitcoiners, we're all in a peer-to-peer network with each other. But really, I think the technical understanding of that is that the nodes are the peers in the network. So when someone hears about Bitcoin being peer-to-peer, what it means is it's node-to-node network. And I guess physically speaking, it's likely something like a laptop or a computer or a single board computer or even a virtual machine for advanced users. Uh, And you're right, running a piece of software. That's right. And I I guess that sort of links into like why to run a node. And you you touched on that in terms of, uh, I guess, the technical way of saying it would be like upholding consensus rules, you know, making sure that newly mined blocks of Bitcoin, they're abiding by the 21 million supply cap rule. It's Bitcoin that's being spent by someone who has the ability to spend it, i.e. they hold the private key. It hasn't been spent previously. And that helps, of course, if you're receiving Bitcoin from someone, because you're right, you want to make sure that you're receiving actual Bitcoin, not some other random asset or something on another chain, for example. That's right. And the other technical term is censorship resistance. Um, This is what gives you that um, ability or or anyone, any individual to spin up a a node, meaning download some software um, and broadcast transactions on the Bitcoin network. It allows anyone to participate. And I think that's kind of, um, you know, that's what we call censorship resistance. That's right. And I guess a a node is relatively easy to spin up and run depending on uh, your hardware available uh, in the sense that you could run, this is getting a little bit into the weeds, which we'll probably talk about later, but like a prunes node. So you don't have to run a node that has all of the Bitcoin blockchain on it. It can be something that verifies the blockchain and sort of cuts it down to a very small amount. Um, Or you can have people that are running a full node itself. But I guess the point being is that you have the option to verify things that are incoming to make sure that you can uh, make transactions out that are not going to be censored. And overall, I think you're like what a node does that we probably haven't touched on specifically is that it maintains your version of the blockchain ledger because that's kind of what Bitcoin is, isn't it? It's It's a network distributed across all these nodes. And it's maintaining a record of all these transactions since the very beginning of, you know, Bitcoin time. Yeah, that's right. And it also helps with your personal privacy. If you're using somebody else's node, well, you know, you're you're logging information with them. Whereas if you're using your own node, well, that's one less data point that they have on your financial history and your balance. So that's kind of another reason as to sort of why you would run a, a, a Bitcoin node. Um, And then finally, I think also would be to help support the network um, to some degree. You know, the more nodes there are, the more, I guess, decentralized this thing becomes. And it just supports that whole decentralization process. Um, And you also sort of use your internet connection to, you know, um, pass traffic through um, to other peers or or these nodes. Um, And so that's always helpful. Less less extent um, that you're supporting the network, but it's 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 a small part. It's true because you do help to bootstrap uh, new nodes or nodes that have less of the blockchain than you. Yes, they, they right. will be sort of seeking to to get that next block to download, and they might get it from your node. Yeah, there, there right. is a bit of a misconception sometimes that running a Bitcoin node helps to secure the network. And I, yeah, I don't know. I guess that's probably like a semantic argument or or a way that you look at it. I would say, yeah, my- I think secure in that it's decentralized. Yes, um, yeah. That's probably more the uh, the the angle that it's going for in terms of, I guess, security. Um, but yeah, it, it's more that it's decentralized and it's not to to you know up to one entity to decide everything. Yes, that's right. And I would say you you could probably argue that it helps you secure your own Bitcoin in the sense that you know that you're receiving legitimate Bitcoin. You're yeah. interacting with the network in a private way as well. But yeah, you're not actually necessarily helping out someone else's security on the network. That's more of like a Bitcoin miner's job rather than a node itself. Correct. I guess the part that we haven't really talked about here, um, and we won't dabble too much in in this either, but is wallets. Uh, because a lot of people will think, well, aren't we talking about wallets when we're talking about interacting with the network, receiving transactions, sending transactions? And it's like a wallet is a very weird choice of name, I think. But at the same time, it's it's stuck and we're, we are probably stuck with it as well. But I'll, I'll, the way that I define it is that a wallet stores your keys and it helps you construct transactions and it helps to display the Bitcoin or the UTXOs that belong to you. But technically, all of that information is really derived from the node that your wallet is connected to because the node is what's connected to the rest of the network. The node is what holds the rules. It holds the blockchain. So it's the uh, it's kind of like the door or the window out to the rest of everything else, whereas your wallet just helps to, uh, I, I guess, see what your node is seeing. 
Does that sort of make sense or do you have any other? It makes perfect. No, it makes perfect sense. You might want to also consider it being the online slash offline world. The offline world is considered, I mean, to some extent, just your keys, um, your private keys and your public keys, which is a function of your, you know, the display of your wallet. Whereas the online world is what gives what's your the, the status of your transactions or, or, or the status of your, your address, how, how many Bitcoins are in that particular address. Um, uh, or, you know, what UTXOs you own and those sorts of things. That's all a part of the online world. So you might want to think about it like that as well, just the online world and the offline world. The online world is the node. The offline world would be your keys. That's right. Makes sense. So what what nodes have we experimented with? Because I, I know you've uh, you've got the node box guide out now and you, you have one uh, in the past year as well. And I think we'll we'll jump into that because I reckon that's probably one of the better ways for people to start dabbling with a node because it's so kind of expandable if they want to have something relatively basic they can just sort of stop a couple of tutorials in if they want something that's a you know a full-fledged advanced node with with every option they can continue on throughout the rest of the tutorials but i'm curious before we jump into that like what other nodes have you dabbled with before getting to the point of say just wanting to run the node box yeah so when when i first got into it um the only thing that there was was really just um I, I, I guess Bitcoin Core. Um, you just download Bitcoin Core and in there would be a very, very basic wallet, um, uh, a basic way of, of, of I guess, uh, backing up. Um, there was just a, a wallet.dat file that you needed to, to have. And if you didn't, if you lost that, well, there goes your coins. Um, that was pretty, you know, that that was Wild West, I would say. Um, well, there's some people who think that the Bitcoin is still Wild West, but uh, trust me, it has improved significantly since. But um, yeah, if you just download and install Bitcoin Core and you use that as your only way of uh, accessing the Bitcoin network, as well as, you know, holding your own um, your own coins, well, you know, that, that was the way of doing it. Uh, and that can be done on any computer. You could just do that on Windows, Mac, Linux, whatever platform. Yeah, it really didn't matter. Uh, you just download it and install it and off you go. Then I went into, um, well, you know, then kind of, that evolved into hardware wallets and to hook up hardware wallets into um, Bitcoin Core is an absolute nightmare. The, the, the interface for it isn't great. It's just not user-friendly to be able to hook in a hardware wallet to Bitcoin Core. And so these packages started to come up, which kind of built through a, a, a middle piece of software called an Electrum server, which would then, you know, interface uh, your your hardware wallet with Electrum, then backed by Electrum server, which was then backed by Bitcoin Core. So you had this nice linear progression. And that was all very command line to, to build up a, an Electrum server. Um, and, you know, there was a little bit more, you know, uh, tech geekiness to it, I guess. Uh, and then, and then this other thing came up um, called the MyNode, which packaged all of this together. So you'd have a, a baseline operating system, and then you'd have um, Bitcoin Core installed, and then you'd have an Electrum server, and you would then, you know, install Electrum on your computer and import the hardware wallet through. And your Electrum server would then, uh, sorry, your Electrum wallet would then talk to your Electrum server that was, you know, on your MyNode. And so that's kind of what I thought was, wow, this is a much, much easier way of getting the privacy benefits as well as the security benefits of a hardware wallet. Mm. So then, you know, I, I've used, I, I did a whole series, uh, video tutorial series on the MyNode. And then I, after, you know, some time of using the MyNode and those sorts of things, I, I decided, you know what, look, that's not really the way that I like to do or, or, or I like to, you know, use or 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 run my own Bitcoin node, um, I decided, you know what, I, I'd like to just, you know, install everything myself, verify everything myself. And I think that, you know, um, the Raspberry Pis at some point, you know, at that time, there was only like a two gigabyte or a four gigabyte version. So sometimes they'd just fall over. Um, and so, you know, there were some issues with Raspberry Pis. Uh, and so I decided, you know what, I think it's time to build out this series where, you know, people can just follow along. And the series that I run, Right now, uh, that's exactly how I run my production Bitcoin node. You know, I install Ubuntu and I go through the entire series of, you know, uh, installing Bitcoin, installing a fulcrum server, installing, you know, uh, an, uh, an array of software 
and yeah, verifying my own coins that way. So that's kind of where I've landed. But that's not to say that, you know, that that's the only way. There are other ways, you know, there's Umbrel that came out since then. Um, there's Ronin Dojo, there's Raspberry Blitz. There's been a lot of um, packages that people can use uh, to, to do this in a more, you know, I guess, user-friendly way. That's true. Yeah. And I uh, I came at it probably very differently to you. And that's probably just due to when I joined Bitcoin, which was a couple of years after you had. So there was already these packaged. Some of them were literally you buy a note in a box, it arrives, you plug it in and, you know, you're ready to go. Not all, for example. Not exactly right. Um, and I was experimenting while well, I was uh, considering getting something like that. I ended up going with a bit more of a sort of build it yourself or a DIY approach. So my first node was a Ronin Dojo, which is, I guess, pretty weird because that's probably considered one of the more advanced ones to jump into. But at the same time, it is a, a packaged up version rather than, a, you know, piecing it together yourself. And that was relatively easy to put together. It's just as simple as flashing the Ronin operating system onto a micro SD card plugged it into a single board computer, which is the only thing at that time that they were supporting. I think at the moment, there's a little bit of support for, say, like running it on Ubuntu, but that's like a sort of a tangent or maybe a fork of the project that's not completely supported. So it's still generally run on single board computers. Then you have something like an SSD that keeps all of your blockchain data. And that was how I've run a node for the last couple of years. And the thing, thing that I liked about it was that I knew that it didn't have a bunch of other stuff in there that I didn't need to use. Because sometimes I think that is the downside of the packaged up versions is that if you're not going to use all the stuff that's in it, but you keep all the stuff that's in it, it's a potential security risk as well. Whereas Rona, yeah. Rona Doja had the, the mindset of saying, well, let's just lock this thing down entirely. Let's close all the ports that we know don't need to be open. Let's get rid of all the dependencies and libraries and that kind of thing from even the base operating system that don't need to be there. And let's just make it do the few things that it needs to do really, really well, which is interact with things like uh, the Samurai wallet um, to have like a, a Whirlpool instance running continuously because if you want to mix your coins, you want to mix them 24-7, they want to provide for that. Um, as well as a few little tools to say like, all right, well, if you're into pri privacy, you might want to have the ability to check how private your coins are. So they have things like, you know, the Boltzmann calculator in there. And so that was that was really cool. But then I started to want to dabble into other things like Lightning especially, and I can't do that, as well as things like hardware wallet integration, which they're getting to a stage now of supporting it, but uh, it was still a bit more difficult to do that at the time. So I, you mentioned Umbral. I ended up going down the tangent of uh, Citadel, which is like the the free open source. Open source, yep, version of that. Version. Run Citadel. Exactly. Yes, yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly right. And that was good. But I guess the problem that I had was kind of what I was just alluding to before. The more stuff that's in there, the more complicated it gets, the more likely things are to, to break or to just not to fall work. over. Yep. And, yeah. and system resources just get used up for no good reason whatsoever. Absolutely. So it's just like you're, you're sitting there with this uh, overhead that you don't really need. That's true. And running something like that on a single board computer became uh, kind of impossible, really. Once you have a few apps installed, it really just uh, hogs all the resources. And not to mention a few of the apps just sort of never worked, especially uh, interacting with Samurai Wallet. So I ended up yeah going down the path of the node box instead. And I guess what I'm touching on here is um, maybe a couple of points that we can talk a bit more about because with the node box, it would probably not be viable to run that on something like a single board computer, wouldn't it? It would need to be like a you know a desktop type piece. Yeah, it's that's like right. A or a micro um, uh, form factor or a laptop yeah. or an actual desktop. You couldn't probably put it on an SBC, could you? No, I, I, and that's kind of why I went away with that. And throughout the series, I will show you some, 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 I guess, places to get these things on the cheap as well. Like right now, if you look at a Dell Optiplex on Ozbargain, you'll find it for like $110, like, it's it, it, they're getting cheaper and cheaper. I, you know, I, I started off with three hundred dollars. They've now it just you know goes down to one hundred and fifty. These are all sort of X lease laptop uh, desktop computers um, that you can't like those. They just you know um, I guess they 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 manufactured them in bulk for businesses, uh, and those businesses would lease get get them on a lease, and now those leases are up, and so every sort of you know six months or so, once those leases start to expire, you start to get this influx of these Dell computers that have just been used by businesses, but they've upgraded to the to the latest version because of their their leasing agreements, and so you just collect these boxes, and they are fantastic for running Bitcoin nodes. Um, they're 
strong, they're reliable, they're workhorses, uh, they don't fall over, they've got the system requirements, they've got the CPU requirements to really eat through anything that you you know you throw at it uh, when it comes to Bitcoin related uh, software at least. Um, so yeah, that's kind of you know where I I've, I've landed and I've decided you know what it could probably be cheaper as well. Like I think the Raspberry Pis when I last I looked they were all sold out. So yeah, if you're looking for an alternative, this is probably the better bet. Yeah, absolutely. And that was exactly the case. The Raspberry Pi, when I was looking for it, was sold out. I ended up getting an Odroid N2, which was actually a bit of a step up from the Raspberry Pi. But all in all, I think it cost me around 300 maybe 350 in total delivered. Whereas more, more recently, I've got one of those Optiplex microform factors. It's the 7040 version rather than the 9020, which I think is actually a, a step up again. Yeah, but the whole thing cost me 210 delivered. So it's yep. cheaper, cheaper than my Odroid and about, I don't even know, 10 times more powerful, probably more than 10 times more powerful. Yeah, that's an, right. As an example, I had no idea about this until you mentioned this at the Bush Bash, and then I kind of verified it for myself. But when you first sync a node on like the initial blockchain download on, say, a single board computer, when I was doing that on my uh, my Ronin Dojo, it would take anywhere from one to two weeks to do that. And that's right. not due to the speed of download. It's more so due to the... Um, CPU processor exactly that's right. it's yep. not just downloading it's actually downloading and verifying and verifying exactly right. and building so now how, how long does it take on the note box or on the on the dell computer that you've got took me 15 hours i literally there you go. That's woke it. up the next that, day went to work yep. came home and it's yep. all done that's it 15 hours that's that's probably where i get as well yep it used to be 12 but now since things have increased um but yeah 15 hours is not too bad just go to bed and when you're awake it'll be done Exactly right. And look, when it comes to running more powerful indexes, because I don't think a lot of people are aware of um, of that distinction. So running Bitcoin Core, it does some level of indexing, but it's relatively basic, which means that if you have a wallet that has uh, done a lot of transactions, it starts to become very slow to actually check through those transactions. That's right. Yeah. Something. Um, sorry, you go. Yeah. Yeah, so the, you know the, the, there are differences in um, Electrum servers. Now, I think it's probably prudent to explain what the Electrum server stack sort of is. So if you think about it, you've got private keys sitting on a hardware wallet, say, for example, a cold card, um, and then that needs to be connected to some sort of wallet software on your computer. So in this particular example I use in the, in the Notebox series is Sparrow Wallet. So that is like my coordinator for my wallet. Um, so I'll, I'll put the skeleton file into the um, into the Sparrow Wallet uh, interface, and it will show me a nice brand new wallet. Now I need a node. Okay. Um, now the best there are multiple ways in Sparrow Wallet to, to connect back to a node. You can use somebody else's node, which is again not great for privacy, um, and relying on somebody else, which is not exactly what we want to do. But it's there just in case you need it. Right. It's always there for the beginner. Okay, if you don't want to run a Bitcoin node, you can always choose from a trusted list of servers. Um, and I think Sparrow Wallet does a good job of maintaining a trusted list of servers that you can potentially, that newcomers can potentially um, use just as an interim step, just to get going, right? Mm -hmm. Then you've got um, connecting directly through to Bitcoin Core, okay? Now that can happen. However, there is a little bit of a time um, to synchronize your wallet. So if you've already been doing transactions on your on your cold card or on your on your ledger uh, or your or your or your Trezor, then to sync synchronize that back up, you need to import uh, this file uh, called basically just providing it with it, what's known as an XPub, which is your master public keys to Bitcoin Core and import that in. That can take a few minutes to, to synchronize and, and go through because it'll start from the entire chain tip and then try and pick your way through. Now, if you've got a pruned node, that's obviously not going to work. So you'll need to start from scratch, basically. So that's that issue. Then you can put through onto a private Electrum server. Now, a private Electrum server, you can start to import as many wallets as you want, and it will instantly show the balances. Uh, or in a more, uh, you know, it'll be significantly quicker um, to get what the balance is and the status of your transactions. And that is what the advantage of the Electrum server does. It allows you to get multiple wallets uh, to get, you know, all of your uh, balances up and running in a very, very quick amount of time and also query other wallets and XPubs and those sorts of things as well. It's a really good way of doing it. However, there is, I would say, a grading to the different types of Electrum servers that we've got. 
it started off with an Electrum personal server. Then it went to uh, an Electrum Rust or uh, Electrum X, and then it went to Electrum Rust server, and then now probably sitting at Fulcrum server. Mm-hmm. And so these are sort of, I guess, the I, I would call it they're different projects, and they're handled by different teams. Um, but it really just depends on what you're looking to achieve. Um, a Fulcrum server takes up just to give you just pros and cons, a Fulcrum server will take about 105 gigabytes of data space on your computer um, to install that thing. Uh, but if you are looking for a wallet or to import a wallet that has a lot of Whirlpool mixing going through it, it will eat it up. Whereas an Electrum Rust server may fall through. But the good thing is with the Rust server, it's only 30 gigabytes, right? So it really depends on what your usage is for an Electrum server and how much you, you intend to use it. That's kind of where I would, would also make mention as well of the privacy benefits of running an Electrum server over just Bitcoin Core. So the other thing, one of the unfortunate downsides of directly connecting up to Bitcoin Core is that in your wallet folder that you have on your computer, there will be some XPubs left over. And if someone was to get that, well, they can see some of your um, some of your addresses. And that may not be good for privacy. Whereas when you query an Electrum server, that probably, well, that will leave no trace of, you know, um, that, that that XPub or that address was queried. And that's, a, that's better for privacy. Having said that, both of those, well, the Bitcoin Core instance of someone, you know, t- physically taking your, your computer, that's probably a rare scenario in itself. So that, up that to you, true. which uh, it's kind of up to you, which, you know, model you wish to go down. It's it's all convenience versus privacy versus, you know, difficulty, all that sort of stuff. It's all just a trade-off. That's true. There was a really good uh, article. I'm not sure if it's actually put out by Sparrow Wallet, uh, a benchmarking article. Uh, yes, or that is Sparrow Wallet. It, it's that in the Sparrow was, Wallet yeah. docs, yeah. Because uh, he kind of um, sets out, okay, if you're going to run Bitcoin Core versus Electrum Personal versus I think Electrum Rust Server and then Fulcrum, Fulcrum, Fulcrum yep. is uh, you know, ridiculously faster than the rest in terms of like wallet load times. Of course, it's uh, it's very slow during that initial uh, not sync, but like the indexing that it does yep. on the blockchain yep. because it goes through in such a more, I guess, a comprehensive way. Yep. Um, but then after that point, it becomes very, very quick to query. And you're right, that privacy benefit of it not being clear that it's indexing just your receiving addresses or just your, uh, yeah, belonging to your XPUB, which is what Bitcoin Core does, um, that, that's a good improvement, I would say, as well. But you're right, it is a, probably a relatively low risk of someone actually getting the physical device, being able to find that wallet file with a Bitcoin Core setup versus if you had Fulcrum, where they're not going to be able to find that. But yeah, they're still going to get the device in the first place, right? So I guess the benefit of running something like this setup compared to one of the other packages, like a Ronin or an Umbral or a Raspberry Blitz, is that at least the way that I come at it, is you uh, you have more options. So each of those packages is usually set up to do a specific thing. And the ones that are set up to do many, many things, they often kind of don't work as intended, at least initially. Whereas the way that you've set up the node box, um, because you're kind of bolting on things as you need them, uh, and you're doing it in probably the cleanest way, uh, it seems there's a lot less technical difficulties, basically, once you've got everything um, set up onto it. And of course, you aren't really limited in terms of your options. Like if you want to run Sparrow Wallet, you can do that pretty easily with just the first couple of steps, which is, you know, install Ubuntu, install Bitcoin Core, um, install one of the uh, indexing servers like a Fulcrum or Electrum Rust server or something along those lines. And then you can use Sparrow. In fact, for basic users, you could probably just get away with Sparrow and Bitcoin Core, keeping in mind all the different privacy and, and, you know, speed payoffs that we just mentioned before. But yep. yeah, if you wanted to run other things like Lightning Nodes or Samurai Wallet, or Whirlpool with Samurai Wallet, or your own Blockchain Explorer or Mempool Explorer, all of a sudden it becomes um, yeah more difficult with these other node packages. Whereas the node box, you just kind of go through a few more tutorial steps and you kind of install those packages on Ubuntu instead. And all of a sudden you have now like a, a fully fledged node system. Yep. So that that's kind of how I uh, I approached it. You just start layering things on top of Bitcoin as and when you need them. So that's kind of the the, the strategy there. You just start off with you know installing Ubuntu, install uh, Bitcoin Core, and then you just kind of layer on software as and when you need them. If you don't need them, well, you know why sort of um, 
you know have have everything sitting there eating up uh, eating up system resources that could be used for other things so you know and the thing is it's expandable so if you go through the tutorial series you're not just limited to the software that I introduce you to. You can now, you pretty much have the skills to be able to go out to any other GitHub repository of things that are new and upcoming in the future, and you'll be able to read the instructions and go, oh yeah, I know what he was talking about because I did it in the in the in the um in the notebook series. So I'll just follow the instructions. I'll follow the same sort of configuration requirements, bit of text editing, and I'll try and hack my way through. That can always happen as well. So you don't have to rely on me. It's more of a just a self-sovereign type thing where you now are in control of your own node rather than somebody else um, dictating what they want to install on your computer. That's probably one of the bigger advantages as well. I reckon it's such a great learning experience, to be honest. Like it, once you're running one of the uh, packaged up nodes, if something breaks, you're more or less just going to the Telegram channel and asking someone to help you, <laughs> unless you really know what you're doing, which yeah. most users, if they take that option, probably don't. And to, to even if someone said, oh, well, explain to me what's happening inside that machine, <laughs> explain to me how these parts are pieced together. It's very, very difficult to do that unless you've actually spent the time kind of doing all the bolt-ons yourself, uh, looking in through the config files and setting them up, which, I mean, your tutorial lays out exactly what you need to do. So it's not like you need to sort of choose your own adventure with that stuff, but it gives you the option to experiment a bit or if something does break to, to kind of, you've, you're more familiar with it already and less scared about making changes. That's right. And and I know guys who have messaged out to me saying, oh, I've got this problem. Can you help me? And then I don't respond for about 10 minutes. And then 10 minutes later, I get a message saying, yep, I've figured it out myself. Don't worry. So a lot of guys will go through this, um, the tutorial series, build skills, understand where to go to find out more information and host themselves and be a bit more self-sovereign and be able to sort of learn where to go, where to find more information, go through the GitHub issues, go through, you know, all, all these uh, resources for you to just learn and sit there and do it yourself. And I think that's the, the best part of this. It's, it's you becoming a little bit more self-sovereign and you understanding what's going on with your Bitcoin node and your financial infrastructure. Because it's not mine. It really, it's not my financial infrastructure here. It's yours. And you need to be able to learn how to sort of troubleshoot it and, and make sure that it, it, it works for you and whoever you want to add on to it. So say, for example, you want your kids on there or you know you want a spouse or someone else to use your node. You know, you can help them as well and, and sort of be that Uncle Jim. Yeah, that's very true. I, I wanted to maybe go on a bit of a tangent related to the uh, the node box and especially the the fulcrum service set up for it because I've uh, I had a bit of trouble syncing it initially, which I've actually troubleshooted and and I've got some guidance perhaps if people experience that too. But I, I noticed a, a couple of other messages on, on Twitter where people mentioned that same sort of thing where they'd get partway through syncing, they'd have a power out or something would happen and then uh, the, the fulcrum server database would be corrupted. I was curious, like, have you come across that in your own personal experience? And did you have any tips or tricks which can kind of just help people get through that initial index? Because after that point, it's rock solid. And yeah, it, yeah. It, it doesn't become corrupted when it gets shut down. My understanding is that if you have fast sync turned on when you're doing the fulcrum index, that is the thing that makes it a bit unstable during the initial index. But after that point, you don't have to worry about it. But I've seen some people giving up partway through and I'm like, don't give up. You just need to like tweak it enough yeah. to the end. And once you're at the end, like you can, can turn it off. You, you can like, you know, even re-index your Bitcoin core and the fulcrum index will stay perfectly fine. But yeah, I'm curious, what, what have you done to uh, to fix that if you had any issues with it? So for me, I, I just, I guess I've been lucky. Um, I actually have not had any issues with uh, the fulcrum server at all. Um, I, I think that that just comes down to pure luck because I do know that other guys have been experiencing this. Um, and so, yeah, I think if you have that fast sync going on at the start, well, you can turn that off once you've synchronized um, or potentially change some of the variables there to, to maybe a lower RAM usage. It might take a little bit longer to, to synchronize, but at least, you know, you'll get it done. And that's the that's the thing. You need it to get to the chain tip as, uh, you know, by hook or crook. That's kind of what the whole, you know, that's the whole server point. So, yeah, that's kind of my experience. I haven't really had too many problems with it the i know that the service file that i created um there was a, a a marker in there that suggested that that's that would help as well so i'm hoping that that kind of helps um out with that process as well but i'm not 
yeah what about you what did you have that kind of so I, I guess there was a physical thing and then there was a settings thing so i was initially uh had it hooked up via usb it was an ssd and i ah, yes i then decided okay i'm actually just going to connect this via m2 instead and have an ssd again it's like five times faster doing it that way maybe more yep, than five times for sure faster, yeah for usb sure. is a real big bottleneck and a lot of these yeah. node packages unfortunately they use some sort of or they require you to use because they're raspberry pies uh, they require you to use a, a usb to 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 connect up the one terabyte SSD. Um, yeah, if you have it in between, if you have the SSD within the machine in, you know, either on a SATA port or an M2 slot, oh, mate, you're going to have a way better experience. Infinitely faster, definitely. The other thing was, yeah, the fast sync settings. So I initially had copied your settings, um, but then I ended up kind of dropping it by one or two gig worth of RAM, which I, I might be able to explain probably why that is in a second, another little tangent I have here. Um, but that certainly helped. Uh, there was one other thing I did. Yeah, I noticed that the swap, so you've got like RAM and then swap, and swap is kind of like your computer pretending to have extra RAM. That's extra my RAM. Yep. basic yep. way of saying it. Yep, I yep, noticed yep. that the swap was getting um, getting to the maximum. So on Ubuntu... Uh, by default, the swap is around two gigs, even though I had eight gig of RAM. So yep. all it is, I increased the swap to eight gig. That's relatively easy to do. This is like a few lines in command line to be able oh, to okay. do that. So if anyone is uh, is struggling to sync it and wants to have the fulcrum server and has already maybe gone from you know USB connection to then putting it into the computer itself by like some sort of port or M2, and you're looking for extra tweaks, I would say perhaps yeah, reduce the fast sync by you know ten or twenty percent. Um, and yeah, even do that other step that I mentioned, because that will, that'll certainly help, you know, having a bit of extra swap there means you just won't get to that maximum. And then the whole thing kind of just craps out because of lack of resources. And then the database is corrupted. You got to start again. <laughs> you want to just basically give it a little so, bit. Uh, more that, that's the other, that's the other thing with Fulcrum. Uh, if it stops, I believe, uh, if it just crashes, you start from scratch, dude, that's, that's it. It's, yeah, it's game exactly. over. You, de you delete the folder and you start again. Um, and that's, that's the soul crushing thing, especially if you're like, you know, 10 hours into it and it just blows up that would be the worst <laughs> well the good part is once you have the ssd not hooked up by usb it won't take you more than about 12 or so hours whereas when you hook it up through usb it's going to take about three or four days so there's a lot of opportunity for it to, to yeah, yeah, yeah. turning down and having to start again yep so the other thing little tangent that i had which is not necessarily just about fulcrum server even though it, it might explain why i had some issues with it is that if anyone is concerned about running uh, the ubuntu server and only being able to operate it through command line interface because that's how you've set it up initially is that they can do slightly easy mode which is the way that i've gone which is just to just use a ubuntu workstation um, I do that for a different reason, like I'm comfortable with command line, but I have a couple of other things on there that do require it to be workstation instead. But by doing that, you give yourself that, you know, the GUI interface that what you see is what you get type of interface when you're interacting with your node. And then when it comes time to run commands, you can do that too. You can still run commands remotely through SSH, like in Catan's uh, Nodebox tutorials. However, the reason I think that was a problem for me was because obviously the workstation version is going to be taking up more resources, resources than the server version. So when I followed your instructions perfectly, obviously I was probably saying, uh, giving too much of fast sync. That's right. And I, yep. that's why I thought, okay, you're running server, I'm running workstation. Mine's obviously more resource hoggish, so I'm going to just reduce the fast sync and that kind of fixed it. So yep. for anyone who's dabbling with that as well, that's having problems with the fulcrum uh, sync keep that in mind. Uh, and also, if you're not looking into doing the node box because you don't like the idea of just having a what's called like a headless server where you can't see the what you see is what you get interface, you can actually run it on a workstation and give yourself a, a bit more um, graphical user interface if you really want. Yes, uh, I, I did make I, I did note that um, people would find it a little bit more intimidating. The 2020 series, which is the series um, that I did about two years ago, uh, that that is in the graphical interface, but then I just decided, you know what, for 2022, we're going full command line um, and showing people how I actually run my uh, Bitcoin infrastructure at home. So that's kind of the way that I did it. Um, but yeah, you can use the graphical interface if you're just starting out. That's a, that's a great place to learn as well. 
and even things like Bitcoin Core. Like if someone didn't want to run Bitcoin Core via the command line, they can yeah, they could just by... double click it and install it, and off they go. Yeah, that's right. And they don't luckily don't lose out on any features because the Bitcoin Core graphical user interface has a command line, a terminal in there as well, which gives yep. you access to all the usual command line prompts. So that's right. Yeah. The reason I mention these things is just anyone who feels like there's a barrier there because it's going to be like too far to do everything by command line. There's a couple of like intermediary steps you can take. But what I would probably all but guarantee is that six to 12 months in, if you've done a bit of probably even less than that, in fact, you've done a bit of like uh, tinkering on it, you'll get to the point where you probably want to go, I want to I want to make this thing use even less resources. I want to make this thing even more stable. And you might then go to a fully fledged just Ubuntu server, full command line, um, but maybe take it as a gradual process if it's uh, intimidating at the moment. Yep, I can I can co-sign that message because that's the exact route that I took. Started off in the GUI, learn more about Ubuntu, see what it can do, and then just went full-blown headless. <laughs> that's it. Well, I guess that's probably most of what people would need to know uh, apart from just jumping into the tutorials, I think. However, I know that some people would be running a Bitcoin node, maybe not because they need all the extra features um, like mixing or blockchain explorers or even lightning and, and those sort of things. Some people might just be running it for like a BTC pay server instance. And so I'm just kind of curious, like how is the BTC pay server run on the node box? And I guess if people didn't want to run it on a node box, because that might seem like too much for what they're trying to accomplish, what other kind of options would they have for a BTC pay server set up? Yeah, okay. So BTC Pay Server is a way for you to, I guess, um, get paid in Bitcoin uh, for your goods and services, for your time, for your labor, um, basically to sell your, you know, sell yourself for Bitcoin. Um, and with the Notebox setup, the way that it's set up is you install um, a backend called NB Explorer, which is kind of just a like a database um, that tracks uh, your your Bitcoin call. Um, and then on top of that is uh, the actual BTC pay server itself. Um, and it's called the manual deployment method, um, where basically you just take whatever's on the GitHub uh, repository and you install that and package it up and you start to run it as a web interface on your local machine. And from there, you can create a username and password. There you can import your XPubs in there. You can connect up a Lightning Network node uh, into there as well. And you can sort of just start creating invoices, start creating a shop, start creating, you know, uh, uh, an interface between your existing, uh, between your, your BTC pay server and your existing um uh, you know, your, your, your e-commerce shop that you've got. There's an array of things that BTC Pay Server can handle. And yeah, it's basically a server that allows you to accept Bitcoin for, um, you know, whatever you sell. So that's kind of what, uh, you know, I, I find that valuable. And that's what I do with the Ministry of Nodes um, sort of website as well. I integrate a BTC Pay Server in there where people can, you know, pay me for 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 my time and uh, donate whatever they feel is you know wh whatever they're comfortable with. Now the node box also because it's local to your internet or, or it's local um, to your I guess uh, to your network, you need a way to expose that out to the to the you know to the world wide web. There's no point like unless you're you know in a physical cafe or something like that where people come to you. If you're selling you know, things online over, you know, uh, the broader internet worldwide, um, then you're going to need to expose that BTC pay server instance out to the world. Mm. And that can become tricky and can also be a security uh, risk. So the way that I have sort of researched into it is using what's known as Cloudflare tunnels, which, I mean, it helps you, it's got its positives and negatives, like all, you know, I guess all implementations and all things in Bitcoin. Uh, but I think it's the best and easiest way to get that exposure out to the world without opening up too much risk. Um, and so that's kind of what I've done within the series. Now, if you don't want to do the full-fledged Notebox series and, and run BTC Pay Server and expose it out and those sorts of things, you could consider um, a, a deployment through uh, a, a, a virtual private server or, or a VPS is what they call them, um, where you pay you know something like ten bucks a month and someone will host that BTC pay server for you. You just need to input your XPubs in and you know off you go, um, and you can start 
accepting Bitcoin um, through your through through the website um, through your BTC Pay server. So that's kind of some of the options there for you if you don't want to do the the fully fledged self sovereign method. You can rely on a trusted third party to to help you out with that as well. Is it possible to? Yeah, do exactly what you just mentioned there is use someone else's virtual private server. Like, am I right that there's sort of community BTC pay server nodes that I like I wouldn't recommend to do it because you are trusting someone else with that? Yes. But yes. If someone says, oh, look, you know what? I'm just making a few sales here and there. I don't want to have to like pay for a VPS every month. I don't want to have to yep. set up my whole separate node for it. Can I just use someone else's like a community node? And that, that's yes. possible too? Yes, that is 100% possible because BTC Pay Server is like a login-based system. You create or you register with a BTC Pay Server um, with an email and a login, and you you can then get access to your BTC Pay Server or, or somebody else's BTC Pay Server, um, but with your login credentials. Um, obviously, the, the owner of the server has full you know view access of what's going on in the server. Obviously, um, so it is trusted in that respect. But if it's just for you know one or two sales and it's not your you know you know it's just something that you just doing you know um offhand and you just want to try it out you can use somebody else's btc pay server to register and there are plenty of public ones if you go to btcpayserver.org i think they've got a list of a few guys who will um or, or a few websites that will you know allow you to just play around with btc pay server if you don't want to you know um set it up yourself yeah, that, makes, that makes sense is it i mean each of these steps i think it's good to have a uh like a laddered type approach, you know, something relatively basic, intermediate and advanced. But say if someone went with the advanced option, to be honest, I, I haven't actually set up a BTC pay server. I don't really have any need for it. Like how complicated is it? Like we, if you had to put on a scale of one to 10 or something like that, you know, is someone who as a, a shop owner that wants to get into it, like, is it accessible? Or do you think they would probably be going with using someone else's first or doing a VPS kind of option? Oh. I think it's probably wise to do use somebody else's just to get familiar with the packaging and the software itself, just to, you know, figure out what, you know, where can I, where do I import my XPubs? Um, mm. Where can I just sort of, uh, how does this interface actually work? Use somebody else's at the start. Uh, get familiar with the ins and outs of it first. Um and from a scale of one to 10, I, I think that's pretty easy. Like it, you just register, you log in and you start playing around with it. There's excellent documentation on docs.bdcpayserver.org. Um, they have fantastic uh, documentation on how you can use your BTC pay server. Um, and so, you know, like I think that's probably the easiest way to, to hook into it um, and, and hook your shop into somebody else's BTC pay server. When you're when you're, you know, when you want to go down the advanced method, that's when it just—it's not that big of a learning um, step to to figure out how BTC Pay Server works because you've already understood what's going on in 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 the actual BTC Pay Server instance itself. The other, you know, the node box or the the, the more advanced method is literally now just installing it, configuring it, and then uh, exposing it out to the world. That's probably a, a different piece to actually using BTC Pay Server itself. True. Yeah, that's right. And it's probably good to mention that this is something that you do as a part of Ministry of Node. So anyone who wants to dabble in this but can't get past, say, some of the initial steps of, say, using a community node, uh, I would say, yeah, reach out to Catan because that's something that you do. Am I correct in thinking that the Australian Bitcoin industry body still has uh, an offer out to say any businesses that do want to accept Bitcoin, they will uh, cover the some of the cost of setup or maybe like a consulting fee or something like that for them to have a session with you? Am I correct in thinking that? Yeah, I mean, look, I think that they will. I think um, they also have a BTC pay server that people can use. Australians um, can sort of use that as a as their own BTC pay server just to check things out. I think they're offering it themselves. So that's quite cool. That's really um, and then cool. if they need some more information on how to use it, you're more than welcome to reach out to me um, and I can sort of guide you through that whole process as well of setting up shops, integrating it with your, um, with your current e-commerce e shop and, yeah, going from there um so I, I have done that before i've i've you know uh we had a ministry of nodes website uh back in back when we started 
And I wanted to sell some cold cards just as a way of, I guess, you know, figuring out how a shop front would work. It's just more of a, I guess, a proof of concept thing. Does this actually work? And so, yeah, I, I used to sell, you know, on-sell cold cards to people and they would pay me in Bitcoin and I would um, deliver them the cold card. So I just wanted to learn how that sort of worked. Um, and now that I yeah understand the intricacies of online sh- uh, delivery and all that sort of stuff, I just, I, I, I canned it straight away. But it was a good um, proof of concept in in any case for me to just learn how this online shopping works. Absolutely, yeah. I think that's always the best way to uh, to learn, isn't it? It's just dabble a bit, give yourself a small project, even if it's just for the sake of having the project. Sake of it. Exactly. exactly. Is BTC Paysover the one that you've gone with because it's just it has that history, um, it's so well supported, and it does sound like it's very feature rich. Because I'm just starting to notice a lot of other alternatives kind of popping up around the place. Um, yeah, I guess the only one I have in my mind at the moment is uh, Sat Sale. Sat Sale, yeah. Um, okay, and so. Yeah. So the way that I think about BTC Paysover, it's a one-stop shop, big solution. Um, You can start to really integrate things. Um, The accounting on it is really, really good. For example, um, if I'm getting paid in Bitcoin throughout the year, I need to put that on my tax return. I need to get a full list from 1 July to 30 June. What is the amount that I got paid? This is exportable via CSVs. It's very extensible. Um, You know, you can do a lot with BTC Pay Server. That obviously comes with a lot of overhead, right? Um, You know, when you're installing all this software, you need to install a database with it, blah, blah, blah. It just adds to the system resources. Not that a node box can't handle it. It'll eat it up, you know, straight away. But... Um, some people have this criticism of, okay, well, I just want something light. I know that, you know, I just get, I just want to get paid. I just want to get donated every now and then some money for some tutorials that I did online or something like that. They need something just a little bit more lighter. And so SatSale provides that, I guess, um, you know, uh, option for people who just want to start off very, very small. Um, and then BTC pay server would be like a professional shop front type thing. Um, so that's kind of where the differences lie, I guess. Um, and yeah, those are the pros and cons, I guess. That makes sense. And again, you know, there's just trade-offs with everything. It's kind of a stepped approach, really depends on your requirements and uh, yeah, the time it takes to set up. Exactly. I'm curious to talk a bit more about um, some meta topics when it comes to running a node. So uh, I guess one of the first queries that I, I often get from people is, you know, should you have it on a dedicated device or can you just sort of chuck it on an old laptop that you use for other things as well? What are your thoughts about doing something like that. This is not just for BTC pay server, of course. This is just like broadly speaking about nodes. Yeah, so for me, I like to put it onto a dedicated machine. And the reason that I do that is because, say, for example, you've got important documents on this laptop that you're using. Like, for example, I don't know, you've got some photos that you really like. Um, You've got something, you know, that you're you're just using uh, as a day-to-day driver and you just don't want to be messing around with it. What if one day, you know, something breaks on the the Bitcoin core side of things or you use up too much memory in that and then now you have no space for your photos or something goes wrong with that day-to-day driver? This is why I like segregation. I don't think it's going to cost, I don't think it's going to break a bank to just buy a Dell Optiplex or something, you know, for $150, $200, $300 just to run a Bitcoin node. I think that that's probably the better option. Just use a dedicated device. However, if you are stretched, then you can use an old laptop, but I wouldn't be doing, you know, daily driver things on it. Um, That's my suggestion i don't know do you have similar thoughts or absolutely yeah i I normally feel like segregating these things for the sake of security and privacy is really important but also yeah that the thing that you mentioned which i've never thought about previously but it's, it's absolutely right is that if things break or if you need to redo things for one reason or another, even if it hasn't broken, but you want to upgrade or, or do something differently, it's nice just being able to go ahead and do that, knowing that you only have your Bitcoin node type stuff on there rather than needing to sort out, all right, what do I do with all these extra files or what other apps do I have here that I need to either reinstall or, or find somewhere else to you know, have a home for? So just in terms of the convenience, uh, it makes most sense to have a dedicated node device. Now, I, I run mine, um, like I said before, as a workstation because I have a couple of other Bitcoin type stuff on there. So I've got it, uh, I guess, segregated from all the rest of my non-Bitcoin things. Um, but I have a lot of my Bitcoin related stuff on that same device. So I guess it's still 
uh, I would say that's maybe like a bit of an intermediary step. It's not just a Bitcoin core. I do have some of my wallet stuff on there as well, like Sparrow Wallet, for example, but I wouldn't ever have other things on there. Like I don't have any chat or messaging apps or email yeah. or personal family photos or anything like that. It is literally just, you know, Bitcoin stuff, which makes it very easy for me to back up a couple of wallet files, delete and reinstall everything if I need to. Um, and there's doesn't take me that long. Um, and it's also the peace of mind to know that it's kind of locked down from a security perspective. There is only the software on there that I need to be running. There's only the ports open that need to be open, et cetera. I, yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that approach. I think it's keep your Bitcoin stuff a little bit segregated to the to the main stuff. Um, now, yeah, look, some people will just use their existing hardware wallet on Sparrow on their existing laptop and then call back to their to their node. And I think that's a good approach as well. True. Yeah, that's right. Given the way that uh, I guess it's being managed by both Sparrow and the hardware wallet, I'd say it's very low risk in regards to security. Um, and given that it's something like a so if you have an index rather than just um, Bitcoin Core, like index, I mean, a Fulcrum server or Electrum Rust server, uh, you're good to go with privacy in that regard as well, even on the device. Great. I guess that uh, leads me to two other questions, one being more about network. So like Tor or VPN, like where do you think for you do these things come into it for running a Bitcoin node? Yeah, so I, I actually copped a, a bit of criticism on the um, on the Ministry of Nodes tutorials for not um, using a VPN or not using Tor to um, you know do the initial blockchain download. Um, now, f I, I think it's probably worthwhile using a VPN um, before you begin. I didn't do that in the tutorials. Um, however, if you want to use a VPN to get started. Uh, uh, then I would recommend something like Molvad VPN, um, where you connect to the Sydney server and or wherever wherever you're based um, to your local server, and go from there. Now, for me personally, I run my VPN at the router level, right? So every machine, even the one that you know you saw on screen on the YouTube channel, that is behind a VPN anyway. So I think that that's kind of yeah, I, I probably should have mentioned that in the in the in the series, but yeah, I, I do think that you probably should at the minimum be looking to uh, install a VPN so that you know people or your internet service provider doesn't necessarily need to know that you went to BitcoinCore.org or you went to Bitcoin.org to to download the, the Bitcoin node software. Um, you don't have to give that information away to your internet service provider if you're not using a VPN. Um, now, the other thing is with Tor, what I do do is I make sure that the, um, the, the, the traffic, the network traffic for, for Bitcoin is specifically or the, the blocks are, are downloaded over Tor after the initial blockchain download. Um, I think the initial blockchain download will take a very, very long time over Tor, um, maybe about a week or so, or maybe more. I'm not sure. It's, it, you know, as you know, the, the blockchain uh, grows every every minute or every 10 minutes um so you know that you, that takes a bit of time so the way that i do it is have it over a vpn um do the initial blockchain download and then from there onwards once you're at the at the chain tip you flick it over to tor and that's what i've done in the tutorial series so yeah i think that that's probably a a, a move that i do i know a lot of the node implementations to start with tor straight away they do the entire initial blockchain download over tor i mean it's up to you how paranoid you want to get <laughs> that's probably a very good way to look at it and it always comes back to that isn't it like what is your threat model who are you actually trying to kind of exactly. keep some of these details private from exactly because uh, there's not a whole lot of extra security by adding those two things in there if you're operating from your home network anyway like if you're doing this from public wi-fi or something yeah then sure but most people are not so it is more about uh, i guess privacy and i guess some security by privacy so it really depends on like who are you trying to remain private from because generally speaking, I would agree with the approach that you've taken. I don't want the initial blockchain download to take me, you know, days or weeks. I want it to be relatively quick. So I install a VPN. Um, I do it at the device level. It's a little bit less sophisticated. Um, I use iVPN, which I think is another decent one. That's a very good one. Yeah. Yes. Um, so I and same thing. Uh, link up to the uh, either the Sydney server or the Singapore server because they're the, the best in terms of latency. Do the full uh, blockchain download and then go into the config settings of Bitcoin Core and set up um, everything to say, only do this over Tor from now on, um, only connect to other nodes that are running Tor, um, only kind of download, you know, if it's coming through Tor, that sort of thing. But I think, again, yeah, it depends on people's threat model. I don't think there's anything really wrong with 
taking that approach that we've taken. Um, but it's something to consider, at least, if people don't run either of those, it's a matter of saying, well, your ISP would have a pretty good idea that you're running a Bitcoin node. It's not horrible, but at the same time, it's a trade-off. Much like uh, other people on the network would be able to see some clear net information about your node that they're connecting to. Now, they don't know that it belongs to you, um, but at the same time, an IP address gives away a lot of uh, like geolocation data. So that might be something that you might not be keen on. So just things to consider uh, and to know that there's some pretty easy options of doing that, like having a VPN running in the background and then telling Bitcoin Core to only download via Tor. It's a couple of lines really uh, in your config file or an extra app to run at the same time, basically. Yep, totally. Now, one of the things that you touched on in your Bush Bash talk recently was, um, I guess, firewall setups. So I don't think this, this is going to be a long topic of conversation. It's probably more so just the concept of, you know, we're talking about maybe locking things down for security or privacy or convenience by having it on a separate device that's, you know, just for your Bitcoin node or just for your Bitcoin stuff. But I'm curious, you know, should people be considering doing that for their their networks as well, like having a firewall that lets their trusted devices kind of operate by themselves separately from untrusted devices. And by untrusted devices, it might be like if you have a, a Google or Apple surveillance type product in your home, like an Alexa, um, or if you have a, a security camera or a CCTV camera or something like that, um, or if you have a smart TV or a smart fridge or a smart light bulb, like you might want to actually have those things separate on a different network compared to Say your yeah, bit. yeah. So that's kind of what I, I, I touched on in the in the bush bash. Um, basically, your router, most routers that your internet service provider um, will provide you with, you can actually go log into that router and um, change some of the settings, like the Wi-Fi password, those sorts of things. Uh, another thing that it's got in there is to set up a guest network. Um, so you might have two networks being broadcast. One network is that you have your trusted devices in there, things that you you know are relatively trusted. And then you might have a guest network for things that you don't trust. So for example, as you mentioned, your Samsung TV or your fridge or your smart devices, uh, your Alexa or your Google Chromecast, those sorts of things. So you might want to put those onto the guest network such that the trusted devices can't be accessed by these untrusted devices. And that's what gives some level of segregation between, um, you know, your computer uh, and or your trusted computer and these random devices that you just bring into your home, uh, as well as other people's um, devices. So say, for example, you've got a friend uh, coming over, you might not want to put him on the trusted network, you might put him on the guest network instead. So that's kind of where you... Um, I guess, and, and, and yeah, you can segregate out people and devices to, you know, uh, maintain a little bit of uh, an ecosystem that is a bit more Bitcoin only friendly. Absolutely. And that's a very easy process as well for anyone thinking that that's complicated. When you log into your router, it's a it's a GUI interface. You get to sort of what you see is what you get. You can click buttons, you can kind of type. It's not command line interface. I'm sure there's ways to operate it with command line too, but it's a fairly straightforward process. And I've got a pretty stock standard ISP given modem from about three or four years ago. And I'm able to set up four different um, virtual networks, or, or I guess you could say one would be the main and three would be guest networks. So that's exactly what I've done just to, uh, to segregate things out. Although I guess a, um, a tip there is that if you put your partner's devices all on one network, yeah, you might either want to explain why you're doing that or at least know that eventually they're going to need to connect to like the rest of the network at some point for, you know, something or other. And then you have to explain why <laughs> why, why, why you can't get there. Yeah, that's right. Why can't I connect to your device? Why can't I connect to this thing? Well, I've, uh, I've put yours on a separate one because you're you're part of the untrusted devices. You're on <laughs> Windows and... <laughs> that doesn't, doesn't fly too well, does it? No, indeed. Well, I guess we've covered off, in my mind, network considerations, just more recently, obviously, you know, device considerations, so like what kind of device to run and also what other stuff to put on that device, as well as software considerations, so like what kind of um, bits and pieces to sort of bolt on to your node package. Is there anything else you think people should keep in mind or any other kind of little tangent topics here that are good to cover off on before we finish up? No, I think I think the idea here is to just get stuck into it. Um, you know, when you actually start to, it, you know, it, bear markets are a really good time to learn. Uh, it is currently a bear market. I'm expecting, you know, um, not a lot of movement in the price for potentially 
some time now. Who knows? I, I, I don't. But the expectation is, is that I guess uh, this is the time where you start to learn and build and sharpen your skills. This is the best time to do it because it's going to be quiet. You're not going to be frazzled and FOMOing and 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 flustered. Um, if you haven't got your coins off the exchange, do that. Um, if you are looking to set up a Bitcoin node and seeing all the tools and things that are available and, and showcasing that, have a look through um, my video tutorials and you'll be able to sort of run through what your Bitcoin can do um, and how you can use Bitcoin in a more private and better way. Um, so that's kind of what the message I want to uh, leave is that now is the time to build. And so you should start to build out financial infrastructure um, because I think your kids will depend on it. Absolutely. I think the idea of be your own bank is really integral to Bitcoin and being your own bank does mean running that infrastructure yourself. And yeah, the productive stuff happens during the bear market. Shit posting on Twitter is not that productive in the first place, but it, it seems to be less productive and less enjoyable during a bear market anyway. So take that time. Then, yeah, invest it into something else. There is so many guides, tutorials, and you know, helpful communities available. If you get stuck on anything, reach out. But I think you know a good place to start is uh, Catan's Nodebox guide or the, the Ministry of Node Nodebox guide. Um, and even if you get just like a couple of the tutorials in and just run Bitcoin Core on a dedicated device running Ubuntu, you will find, yeah, a drastic improvement from the usual experience that you have where you're trusting someone else's node um, or you don't even know how that whole situation works with how your wallet interfaces with your node and the rest of the network. Like, these are very good conceptual things to get your head around it um, while there is time to. So, yeah, I kind of just want to echo your sentiments. Just get started. And don't be too concerned if you don't think you're doing it perfectly. No one really is. <laughs> and it's a gradual process to learn and get better at it over time anyway. Better myself. No worries. Well, thank you very much for your time. Uh, much appreciated. I'll link up uh, both the guides that you've done from this year and last year, the Ministry of Nodes site. Um, I've produced an article just generally about nodes conceptually. So we didn't go into that in too much detail in uh, this episode. So I'll put that up in case anyone is keen for more detail about that. And as well as our past episode around um, privacy, because if you've got your nodes set up and then you do want to start to dabble in uh, some of the more advanced topics, which are good to get your head around, that is a, a good next step as well. So again, thank you for your time on both that episode and this one. Thanks thank for having you. me. No worries. And thanks everyone for listening. Until next time.